Clockwork. <laughs> you can count on it. All right. Hebrews chapter 1. Okay. I want to actually uh, spend a minute or two just kind of in, in silence. Uh, in stillness, I think there is a huge value to. Anytime you enter into a time of reading or studying God's Word, to to enter into it soberly, um, prepared, ready to to hear what God may want to say. Um, I don't know about you, but your days and your weeks are running together. You got all kinds of stuff going on, and you rush here and you get here, and you sit down, and your mind is racing and so I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to just to, to take those things that are going through your head classes and tests and work and whatever and and give those things to the Lord so that so that uh, you can connect to him and disconnect from those things temporarily so uh, let, let, let's take a couple minutes in, in prayer and then I'll close Father, we, we want to hear from you. We want your voice to be loudest tonight. And so, God, I pray that you would speak through me, um, that, that anything that I say would be true of you, and anything that is not true, God, would be dismissed. And I, I pray, Lord, for your, um, your, your spirit to, to move, to reveal, to help us understand you, God, help us to know who you are, and God, help us to know how to respond to you in obedience. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So last week, uh, the author of Hebrews, um, as we talked about, uh, Drew said, most likely this, isn't a, this wasn't a letter that was written. This was a compiling of sermons. This was a sermon preached um, in, in the form of, of a letter, but but because of the way it was started, and because of the way it didn't start with I Paul to you so and so, it, it starts right in heavy, and the author starts by describing. We talked about these seven indicative statements about Jesus' unique and divinity, uniqueness and divinity, that he is both unique and divine in these seven different ways, and he ends very the last verse of, of last week, verse four. He ends describing how he is superior to the angels. And, and that verse leads right into this next, next section, actually right into the rest of chapter, chapter 1. So last week, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 4, is Jesus' unique in, in, in divineness, unique in divinity. And then in chapter 2, 5 through, what do we have, 18, that's next week, or actually in two weeks, because next week we'll be having a... a, a home game, so we're going to tailgate here, but in two weeks we'll, we'll talk through how Jesus founded and perfected salvation through suffering. And so right in the middle of those two big sections 
is this description of why Jesus is superior to angels and, and why it matters. And so let's jump in. Um, basically what you're going to see him do is he's going to, he's going to explain why Jesus is superior to angels in, in a couple ways. He's going to use a couple methods. One is a, more of an oratory method. Um, he's going to use this thing called a chain quotations. Basically, anytime a, a, a speaker or a preacher would want to build a case, um, especially based on Scripture, they would quote section, verse after verse after verse to just have this mounting evidence so that by the time you're done, your audience is going, of course, like, yes, of course. I can't believe I would think any different. That, that's kind of the direction. That's what the, 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 the speaker, the author, is, is going for. And he, and he puts these four pairs of Old Testament references. And then, and then um, at the very end, he, he lists one kind of climactic quotation to prove his point. That's the first thing, is this, this chain quotations. This, the next thing he does is he has a messianic view of, of the Old Testament. He... Um, the way he uses verses is evidence is evident of how the first century church. Okay, this was around 65 A.D. So, the, the first century church was, anytime they would read scripture, they were reading it through the lenses of a messianic fulfilled prophecy that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. And so, when they see scripture, they go, "That's Jesus, that's Jesus." And so, the author um, speaks with that same consistency, which tells us a lot about how they interpreted scripture in first century. So some insightful things. Uh, so let's jump in. Um, who wants to read? Somebody close that can read that hasn't read before. Okay. Haley, uh, read 1, verse 5, please. This is what he does. This is you'll see him do this several times. He asks a question with an assumed answer. The question is, who among the angels has God ever said? And then he quotes a couple things. And the answer is what? Jesus. No. Nobody. Nobody. Like none. Who? How many of the angels has Jesus has God said this about? And the answer is none. That's that's ultimately what he's what he's getting at. Uh, so this first, these first, this first pair of quotations, he's he's describing Jesus's again unique and divine relationship to the Father, his sonship uh, to the Father. And so, Psalm two seven is quoted there. In its original context, this is interesting. This this psalm, this verse actually was right in the middle of a psalm that was describing um, God's victorious, his victory um, as the anointed one. Like the anointed one's victory over all their enemies. Like he was going to win in the end. He was going to rule over all the authorities. Anybody that was, that was against God, God was going to win in the end. That was the context of this verse. Second um, Samuel 7.14, in its original context, it's David describing his anointed offspring whose throne will be established forever. Like the king of... God, David's offspring will be king and his throne will be established forever. And that, that is a very clear messianic prophecy. The church, right, in the first century, having just witnessed what Jesus has done 
and experience the, the, the church spread like crazy, would look back and see these verses and go, yes, that's Jesus. So the, basically what he's saying is, who of the angels has God said um, they are both divine, he is a divine son and a victorious king? Who of the angels has God ever said that about, that, he's divi- that, he, that they are a divine son and, and a victorious king? And the answer is none, but clearly about Jesus. He keeps going. Uh, read 6 and 7. Okay, so th- these next, this next pair of quotations, he starts by saying, again, when he brings the firstborn, this, this, this term, ancient, his, ancient uh, civilizations, firstborn was a, a unique honor. It, it was a, oftentimes, you know, birthrights and, and um, special privileges and honor and, and authority were given to the firstborn. And he says, firstborn into the world. Now, there's three different words for world in, in the Bible. There is the earth world. There is the people of the world, for God so loved the world, people of the world. And then there is the world that's this word, which is the cosmos. So he's not saying the first person born into the earth. He's not saying the first person born among people. He's saying the firstborn of the universe, of the cosmos. He says who, uh, uh, you know, when he speaks of this firstborn of the cosmos, and then he goes in, and he basically um, he's referring to how God called in, in, in Psalm 97. He's referring to how God calls them to worship the Son, like He calls the angels to worship the Son. And then in Psalm 104, he, he calls the angels and he refers to them as servants of God, but he never says that of, of Jesus. But he he calls he refers to that of the angels. In other words, he's saying, why are, why are the angels viewed as um, lower than the Son to, to worship Him and and to serve God, they're, they're just meant to serve, be servants of God, when, when clearly he doesn't describe the Messiah that way, the Son in that way. And then he goes on, read 8 through 12. So here's three things that kind of come out of this. The, the three statements he's making about Jesus that actually he's continuing from the first four verses of the chapter. He says, uh, but of the Son, he says, this is what he says about him. He has all authority. And so he uses words like throne and, and kingdom and, and scepter. And he says Lay, he, he lays the foundation of the earth. Like, like, all, like He's just repeating you know, major truths about Jesus that he said early on, that Jesus, that all things were made through him. Like he, he made the, he has all authority, he says. The next one, he says, he is eternal. He, he says things like forever and ever. 
He says, they will perish, but you will remain. You are the same, and your years have no end. So he's saying Jesus is not only all, power has all authority, but he is eternal. He's everlasting. And then the last one, maybe the most um, persuasive one, maybe the, the heaviest one, um, he actually says in the very first part of verse 8, or for, when he's quoting this psalm, he says, Your throne, O God. It's one of the clearest references in the New Testament of the author in, of a New Testament book calling Jesus God. He, he says, look at it. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He calls him God. He has all authority, he is eternal, and he is God. Now, he is mounting evidence at this point. Like, heaping on top of each other evidence of Jesus' divinity, his uniqueness, his authority, his power, his, his, his uh, eternality. And then we go to 13. Read, read verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Okay. So, so this is his climactic verse. This is the one he says, okay, just in case there's any doubt, who to any of the angels has he ever said, right? And, and the assumed answer is none. And, the, and, and he quotes this verse, Psalm 110, 1, verse 1, is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Um, Jesus actually quotes this verse to some, some religious leaders who are trying to trip him up. And, of course, Jesus answers their question and, and baffles them all. And he says, you know what, I have a question for you. And then he quotes this verse and he says, how, how is it that if David is, how, how does David's ancestor refer to God? And he's basically saying, um, that, that, that David wasn't the ultimate fulfillment of what David was talking about, the Messiah is. And Jesus is saying, and that's me. So Jesus quotes this verse. The, the author here uses this verse to describe Jesus' authority and power. Think about it. He's, he's at the right hand of God, which is a place of authority and power, a, a, a pristine, preeminent position. He says, until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. Like, the enemies have no chance. The enemies are going to be a footstool for his feet. So he is victorious. He has all power. He has all authority. He is God. It's evident. It, it's mounting. In verse 14, go ahead and read. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Yeah. So he kind of ends it. Aren't, aren't just angels um, sent by God to, to as mess? That's what the, the term literally means is angel is a messenger. Aren't angels' jobs simply just to be messengers of God sent to serve who? Who does it say? It says, those who inherit salvation. Who's that? Yeah. So, as high of a view of, that they had of angels, he's saying, listen, they have value. They are amazing creatures, but they were sent as messengers to ultimately serve us, to bring bring us, to, to help us, to, to serve us, and you see that happening all throughout the Old Testament. So, all of chapter 1, okay, from the first verse and, and through 14, all of chapter 1, which wasn't a chapter when he wrote it, but all of this section was, was given to basically say what he's about to say. 
the beginning of chapter 2. So the beginning of chapter 2, these first few verses, is really his ultimate points. This is, this is what he's driving at. This is the, the mounting evidence is all to, to say this. Boom. Chapter 2. Go ahead and read. You know, actually, I'm going to read this because I want to I want to pause through it. He says, therefore, so in light of all that was just said from from first verse through through 14, in light of all that was said, it says we. Okay? Who's the we? Who? Believers, the church, Christians. Okay, not non-Christians. Christians. It says we must Okay, so he puts he adds an ex, extra emphasis of importance here. Therefore, we must. It says, pay attention, uh, pay uh, much closer attention to what we have heard. It says, based on all that we've all all that I just told you about how big Jesus is, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. What have we heard? What is he saying that we've heard? In 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 one chapter, in chapter one verse two, he says. That, G, that Jesus is the revelation of God. The ultimate, fulfilled revelation of God. The final word is Jesus. His life, His death, His resurrection. Like His, the, the gospel of Jesus. He's saying ultimately, we, Christians, must pay closer attention to the gospel of Jesus. Lest we drift. This word drift away... Um, is a word that kind of originally would have been used to describe a ship that was carried away by wind or, or by a strong current and that missed the, uh, the dock or missed the, the, uh, the harbor that it was intended for and, and kind of smashing up against the rocks, like heading one direction and then something just took it and smashed up against the rocks, that, that there is this picture of drifting away. So question. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying, we must pay closer attention lest we drift away. How does a Christian drift away from Jesus? Okay, if it's true that once we're saved, we're always saved, then what are these Christians in danger of? What's in da- what's, what is he saying they're in danger of? That's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking the question because we're gonna, I'm not. We're not gonna answer that question. It's a question that's been debated for you know, 1,500 years. So I don't think we're gonna answer it tonight. But I'm gonna let it hang, because that that you need to you need to see. That's what the author is doing here. He's warning these people. And why would they need a warning? It's worth thinking about. We'll come back to that in several weeks um, to come. Verse, uh, verses 2 through 3. He says, For since the, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, he's saying, whenever the angels came, whenever the angels came and spoke God's message, God expected the people to follow that message. And all the people are going, Yeah, of course. If an angel shows up and tells me to do something, yeah, we're going to do it. And, and, and if I don't do it, then I deserve the punishment for not doing it. So he goes on. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There it is. This is the point. This is the, this is the climax of his 
his opening argument. He, he uses a, a kind of a, a homiletical um, skill, if you will. Homiletics is another word for preaching. A rabbinic homiletical skill where, where they would take an argument and, and go from lesser to greater. If it's true of the lesser, then how much more true is it of the greater? That's what he's doing. So if it's true that when you heard, uh, when, when God used an angel to give a message, that he absolutely wanted the, his people to follow it. And they're going, yeah. He goes, how much more, after everything I've just told you about how, how much greater Jesus is, how much more superior he is than angels, how shall we escape if we ignore? Strong word. Very strong word in this. It's actually a, a word that describes um, just through apathy, um, not even caring, just ignoring it. How shall we escape if we ignore Jesus' message? We, we, we wouldn't dare ignore an angel's message. How shall we escape if we ignore Jesus' message? That's what he's saying to him. He says, he goes on in 3b, this message, this great message of salvation, it was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Um, I don't know if you remember last week, Drew said one of the reasons why we don't believe Paul wrote this is because Paul um, never said, I heard this from someone else. I, I learned the gospel from, from the apostles. I learned it. Paul, in his letters, would say, no one taught me this. I heard it directly from the Lord. Paul was quick to claim apostleship, to say, I heard this directly from him, so you can take my word for it. Like, my words are Jesus' words. He told me to say this. Paul, that's, that's what Paul did. The author is saying, um, the Lord declared this, and then we heard it from his apostles, his disciples. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to, to, to us by those who heard it firsthand. So he's describing secondhand generation Christians. Not secondhand, second generation. Secondhand, that's a bad thing. Second generation Christian. Um, and then he says, and then he says, uh, and while God bore witness to it by these four things, by signs, by wonders, by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So he's saying, this great salvation, okay, you, you can't, you have no, if, if you're going to ignore it, you're ignoring something huge. And you can't ignore it because you know the Lord declared it, you know it was attested to by his, his apostles to, to us and we heard it from them. And God proved it to you through for miracles, wonders, signs, gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think back to the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. You'll, you'll see all this happening. And he's going, how could, you, how could you escape? How could you ignore this? And you can't. So, uh, he finishes by, by again, the whole point of chapter 1, the whole point of pointing to the bigness of Jesus is to say, hey, listen, why would you turn from this? Why would you ignore this? This is huge. Okay, we're going to take a break, a couple minutes, and then Drew will get up and share a little more with us. So stand up, stretch, and come back. Okay. Um, 
chapter one of Hebrews is an interesting one. Um, you have in this in this chapter the author or the preacher, if you want to call him that, um, the the preacher comes out basically guns blazing from the very beginning. All right, um, and and he, as Scott says, piles passage upon passage. Um, thought upon thought, idea upon idea about who Jesus is to basically just overwhelm his audience with this idea, conveying the vastness, the bigness, the supremacy of Christ, um, if you will. And so he throws all this stuff out here and and he says in there these things about Jesus, um, among others, that he's the son of God, that he is um, one that even the incredibly beautiful, magnificent angels themselves look at him and they worship him. He says, as Scott said, one of the most explicit statements in the New Testament that Jesus is God himself. He says that Jesus is the king whose kingdom will go forever, that he will reign forever. He says that he's the creator. He says that he's eternal, that he will last forever and that he will not change in spite of the way the universe might that Jesus never will. There is a lot of major statements made about Jesus in this passage and the question I have for you is why? Why does the author say all these things about Jesus here? And let me rephrase that question specifically here. Why does the author, why does the preacher say all these things about Jesus here in chapter 1? That's actually, just so you know, That's a very important hermeneutical question, okay? A very important question when you go through the process of studying, interpreting the Bible. That's a great question to ask. Why does the author say this here and nowhere else? Okay? Why do they choose? It helps you get a feel for the flow of their argument and what they're trying to say. When you read the Gospels, you'll notice, just so you know, the, the Gospels aren't all written in chronological order. And you can find that out pretty quick when you read parallel uh, Mark's account of something and then Luke's or Matthew's account and then Luke's and you see that they've got them in different order okay either Luke was mistaken and he got his order wrong or he had a specific purpose for putting this story in the spot that he did great question to ask yourself why did he put it here and nowhere else back to Hebrews why did the author put it here and nowhere else this would have been a beautiful climactic ending to his entire sermon to his entire book to just get to the end and unload with all this information about Jesus and his greatness and vastness this would have been a perfect linchpin in the middle of a sermon that everything ties together we talk about indicative truth okay flowing into imperative command what a great way to transition from indicative to imperative to then to put all this stuff about Jesus right there why does he not do that why does he decide instead to do it at the beginning here That's a question that's always worth asking. And I think the answer is, and Scott already hit hit on it, the answer is the first few verses of chapter 2. Where he says this, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, and in the Greek and in the ESV, that word therefore is the very beginning. Okay, It's actually two words, this diatatu, for this reason is what he's saying. So in light of everything I just told you in chapter 1, you better pay attention. Because Jesus is who he says he is, because of all the things I mentioned about him, we better pay attention um, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape 
if we ignore so great a salvation. We told you this, the main exhortation of this book, the main command given, the main thing that the preacher, the author is driving at is this, persevere, remain faithful. We talked about how the audience who is hearing this is more than likely a Jewish audience who has come to faith in Christ and therefore most of them lost almost everything. They lost their family, they lost their traditions, they lost their community, they lost their jobs, some of them were thrown in prison, and many of them are thinking right now about going back on that. It's costing too much. And so the major charge in the book of Hebrews is this, persevere, remain faithful all the way to the end. And here's what I think the writer of Hebrews believes, and this is why he puts this chapter here where he does, that an accurate view of Christ's bigness is key to perseverance. That an accurate understanding of Jesus in all his vastness in his supremacy is key, is crucial to your ability to be able to persevere, to be able to remain faithful to all that he is. This is what George Guthrie, he's a commentator um, that we use a lot in studying the book of Hebrews. He says this, the preacher focuses the listener's attention on the preeminent position of Jesus in order to draw them to the preeminent authority of Jesus. He starts off by focusing them on the preeminent position so that he can then focus them on the preeminent authority of this. We need chapter 1 of Hebrews to give bite, to give power to the rest of the book. Okay, We need to understand Jesus properly and all that he is and the bigness of him to be able to move in for the rest of the exhortations, for the rest of the imperatives um, to really have, and I would even say for the rest of the indicative truths that are being shared, for the, for the real power to be there. Um, it says we're, we're drawing attention to Jesus' position to bring him to his authority. By authority, I mean at least two things, okay? Authority about Jesus implies this, um, that he is one in control, and number two, that I owe him my allegiance. If Jesus is who the writer of Hebrews describes him to be, if he has that much authority, if he has that much power, then he is in control, which is something the people listening to this sermon for the first time needed deeply to hear. And number two, I owe him my allegiance. Um, perhaps this could be better um, better stated or better understood by highlighting what the writer of Hebrews does not say in the first chapter of this book. The writer of Hebrews, in trying to lay a foundation for them, in trying to set the stage so he can call them to persevere, he never mentions to them that you follow Jesus and you'll get an easier life. Never says that. Is that a true statement? Not a true statement. And that would be why he doesn't say that because following Jesus doesn't make your life easier and they would see that and they would know that he does not say that if you follow Jesus things start to work out that that like you could find what you need that things come together that you could find a godly spouse like that that verse that um, uh, delight yourself in the Lord what he will give you the desires of your heart the verse that has launched a thousand single women into prayer for, to, God, I delight in you so much, okay? Um, that's, that's, that's not actually, that's, that's not a problem. But here, and, and I can kind of joke about that, there are all kinds of people, okay, and you're not at this spot yet, there are all kinds of people who come to Jesus because he could make my marriage work. 
if he can maybe help me get my family like back together can he get because he can get that stuff go if i can get my kids in church then everything works out the ride the, the writer here the preacher never promises anything about you having a better family life or, or things coming together for you when you follow Jesus. That's not why he says you follow Jesus. Is that true, by the way, that Jesus can give you a better marriage or a better family life? True sometimes. Also sometimes not true. There are probably people listening to this at the very time whose marriages were being torn apart by the fact that they were now faithful and committed to Jesus and their spouse was not. Um, he does not say... Um, that following Jesus will make you a better person, okay? That, that you need to stick with him because doing that will bring you to be a better kind of person. Is that true? Yes. yes. Following Jesus makes you, and maybe the better word, it's not just a better person. It makes you a new person. It makes you a transformed person. It makes you a completely different kind of person. But that is not the reason that we follow him. That's not what the writer focuses on. That's not where he wants to draw their attention to him. He doesn't point out that Jesus, as is so popular to talk about today, and even somewhat right, that Jesus is the closest friend they'll ever experience, that they can experience a friendship and, a, and an intimacy with him that they don't have. He never points out to them that, that Jesus is, is, is a counselor who can, who can give wisdom and, and, and speak truth to you in your deep troubles. He never talks about Jesus being the greatest support system you'll ever have, so you need to stick with him. He never talks about Jesus being an incredible teacher that can guide you through all the difficult things in life. All those things are true, but he never hits on any of those things because he doesn't want to drive Jesus down to something that small. He is all those things, but he, he is also so much bigger than that. And when we reduce Jesus to those things, my best friend, my buddy, or when we come to Jesus because he makes my marriage better, or, or he can maybe keep my kids in line, or, or when he comes in because he can make me a better person, what we've done is we've shrunk him down. And, and what we do by statements by that is we say that Jesus exists for me and not vice versa. Right? Because the truth is, we, every one of us, breathe, live, exist for Jesus, for him, okay? bizarre um and this is the truth that that i think needs to be said now i, I know this i say this statement okay we don't exist for or jesus doesn't exist for us we exist for him and i know when i say that that most of you in here are able to kind of say with that amen that's what we believe jesus doesn't exist for us get that crappy osteen theology out of my face okay <laughs> like that's that's not where we're at so so we believe this jesus we exist for jesus we are here for him he is preeminent he is supreme he is authority and we are all here for him and yet there is a difference between agreeing with the truth and submitting to that truth there is a difference between those things and and, and it can be very easy i think for us to to make large statements about jesus and his identity and then and then live a lifestyle that kind of denies those statements really do believe that very many of us live a life, live our Christian life as though Jesus is here for us, to make things work out better for us. The, the, the phrase that was coined um, nine years ago now um, about your generation is moralistic therapeutic deism. You ever heard that phrase before? Moralistic therapeutic deism 
describes the Christianity of a lot of people our age, young people, this day. Moralistic being, it, you act better, therapeutic, you feel better, okay? Deism means, the technical term for, for deism is the belief that there was an intelligent designer, a God who created everything, but then walked away, that he's not involved in like the everyday aspects of our life. In, in moralistic therapeutic deism, the idea is not so much that he's not involved at all, it's just that he's involved when I want him. Like he's there for me when I'm hurting. He's there for me to kind of help me make a big decision about college or my career, but, but I can also kind of put him to the side when I need to. And, and, and that is, um, as, as bad as that sounds, that type of idea, we are all, I think, a lot closer to that than we ever want to believe. And, and how do you know if that's you? If you live as though Jesus exists for you and not vice versa. Here's, here's a couple hints, okay? And, and, and there's probably a number of things we could get into that could get into this. But let me just kind of throw out three possible signs that that might be you. The first is this, that you have a pattern of switching churches every two to three years. Or in college terms, two to three semesters. Everything gets shorter in that time. Every two or three weeks, okay? Um, you have a pattern of switching churches. Why? Why does that have anything to do with Jesus existing for you rather than you existing for him? It's because I believe this, that, that often people come to the churches that the main point of Jesus, of his church, of his community is to feed, is to feed me, to fulfill me. And, and, and I've heard that phrase a lot when people have moved. I just, I just wasn't being fed there. And so that's like the whole point of Christianity is that you find the place where you're most fed. And hear me, there are good reasons to leave some churches. Okay, I'm not saying there's not. We talked about this last year, I think like six, eight, I can't remember what it was, ten good reasons to leave a church. There are good reasons to leave churches. But if that is a pattern in your life, if that is a pattern in your family's life as you look back that you guys just kind of jumped around every few years, that might say something. It might be worth paying attention to. Here's another sign that maybe you believe Jesus exists for you, that you do obey him when it's convenient. Like there's a lot of it, it's there are a lot of times when it is actually fairly easy and convenient to obey to obey him and to follow him and, and, and maybe that's you that you do those things but in times when it's less convenient when it's just you and your girlfriend in her apartment at night and I know all the stuff he says about whether or not we should be sleeping together before we married but that's just not real practical okay doesn't fit your rule book, okay? Doesn't work out with your situation. That's that stuff I push to the side. That means Jesus is there for you and not you there for him, okay? Um, here's another one, and this one, I'll be honest, hits very close to home in my own heart, and that is if your commitment to Jesus never causes you to do anything uncomfortable. Like, there's never any challenge for you. If, if, if you never give, have to, like, give a little bit more money than you're comfortable with, spend a little bit more time serving than you really want to um, enter into what might be kind of awkward conversations with someone like if, it, if you're never uncomfortable because of your commitment to Jesus if all he ever allows you to do is be comfortable and, and live life the way that you like and that's, that's easy and enjoyable that may be a sign that he exists for you rather than the other way around and it's a sign that what we've probably done when those things take place is we've shrunk him down into something that he's not or limited him to something that, that he shouldn't be. Those of you who do go to Sunnybrook a, a month ago, I got to actually share this 
quote one of my favorites from uh, A.W. Tozer, and that is that there is scarcely a fault in our living that cannot be traced back to a fault in our thinking about God. Okay? There's almost nothing wrong with the way we live that you can't trace it back to something wrong in your belief about God, that you don't see Him properly, that you don't see Him rightly. And chances are, whenever you live as though Jesus is here for you, that means you've probably taken a wrong view of Him, that you view Him as a great friend, as someone you can go to in time of need, as a counselor, but not a whole lot more than that. And if you're going to persevere, if you're going to stay faithful to the end, if you're going to finish strong in the Christian life, even through your college life, you're going to need something bigger than that. Listen, the audience in the book of Hebrews, as they are facing persecution, as some of them are getting thrown in prison, as they're having their families disown them, as they're losing their jobs, the, the, the audience, they need more than just a buddy, right? Like they need to know that the one that they're giving all this stuff up for is the one that angels worship. Like they need to know that he's the one who, who's in control of all things, that, that he is taking care and that even though it doesn't look like it, even though it looks like things are falling apart, that they've left it all to follow the one who can take care of them, who can control all of this. My wife's friend who, who unknowingly entered into a marriage with a very wicked man who was abusive and an adulterer and, and who just recently split from that guy and, and who now faces um, life as a single mom and who just discovered yesterday that her dad, who she loves and who's been a, a major support to him, has been diagnosed with cancer. Like, she doesn't need a counselor. Like, she needs, she needs the one who created the entire universe and sustains it. She needs that person to sustain her through this. And, 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 and a Jesus that is there for me in certain times when he's kind of good for me or, 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 or a buddy isn't going to cut it. And when I face temptation to, to step away from him, when things get hard because it will at some point, and when it would be easier to just walk away or when it would be easier to continue claiming faith in him but in reality living my own kind of life in the way that i want to live what i need is not just a good teacher giving me some great wisdom and maxim i need a picture of a king who the writer of hebrews says rules over everything and one day all his enemies will be placed under his feet and i need a reminder that i don't want to be one of them because he's because he's too big to try and go against He's too big to make an enemy of, and I need a reminder of that. We need a Jesus who is big. Jesus is all of those things I just mentioned. He is the one that before time began, that there was never a moment when he did not exist. Moment isn't even the right word because he's outside of moments. Before there were moments, there was him. When moments are all done, there will be Him. Okay? And he is a God who does sustain everything you see before you, created by Him, held together by Him. Everything that you can't even fathom, things that are too small for you to see or too far away for us to be even um, able to grasp or get pictures of with the telescope, He holds all of that together right now by His powerful Word. He's a God who's in control of everything. He's a God who has a kingdom that will never, ever, 
ever end, and in spite of anything that comes our way, the writer says that he is unchanging, faithful. That's, that's what my wife's friend needs when everything else around her is falling apart, one who is unchanging. And, and the good news is this, she has it in Jesus. She has it in him. Our goal ought to be this. Um, one of the most important things we can ever do, I believe this, and this is why the writer starts here, and this is why we start with the gospel, and this is why we want to spend some time in Hebrews. One of the most important things you can ever do is have a right and true and accurate picture of Jesus. To see all the bigness of him, to see all the vastness of him, to see all his supremacy. And so my, my heart for us is this, that we would aim toward that end. Um, and, and that's why we're excited about Hebrews. Because it is going to give us all these different facets of Christ and his goodness and his sufficiency and his supremacy. And I can't wait to dig in the, um, to that the rest of this year with you guys and continue to talk about it. May he change us through a better picture of who he is. I want to pray about that. Um, and then you guys can pass cards up and we'll hang out for a little bit. Dear God, I, I probably sound, um, I sound redundant, but I'm probably truthfully just making up for years of really bad prayers um, in praying this one. God, that you, would, that you would grant us the ability and the capacity to see you for who you are, and that you would grant us the ability to see your son for who he is, that it is that right understanding of you that would drive all our lives and all our actions, that your spirit um, would make clear to us, Jesus, and that he would give us a greater love for him and a greater devotion for him and a greater fear of him, and that those things would drive us to holiness and faithfulness and that you would get all the glory and the honor from that. Um, I pray that over all of us and ask that from you in the name of your son, Jesus, who makes a way for it. Amen. Amen.